Well, hi everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Your boys are feeling low energy, so we're going to come out of the gate especially strong in order to make up for that. Isn't it right, Donato? It is. I, pr- I appreciate the honesty there, uh, because I mean, the last podcast we talked about, I was coming off the uh, CCA high and a bunch of other really exhausting things, and I think we're trading places. So, you know, this is just life. This is how life goes, and we're allowed to be low energy some days, and other days we're, we're riding riding high. And our wonderful guest this week asked us not to put on airs, so we're coming out. We're speaking the truth, man. And if you're afraid to hear us speak our truths to tell you how things really are in the film world, man. And I don't fucking know what to tell you because you just ain't ready to hear it. I mean, it, it is a shame that the people listening don't have the picture of you in a hoodie with the hood pulled over your head <laughs> saying this. I'm because chilly. It is a certain kind of uh, picture there, a little conspiracy kind of high, high on life picture I'm getting. I am. I aspire to be the Breitbart of film criticism. Oh, wait, that was called Rebella and it died. Anyways uh welcome to certified forgotten uh i am one half your matt host matt monagle as always i'm joined by my good friend matt donato and we are joined by our good friend oh wait i don't do the introductions donato i'll let you do this you're so out of whack you you just taking my job you're, you're just trying to step all over my feet but i will make it short and sweet we have had this guest on to talk about the Poughkeepsie tapes, an episode that we got into some pretty heavy topics on. And I, you know what? I, I was almost going to say, I don't think we're going to get that heavy again, but we're talking about another uh, true crime kind of horror thriller. And I, I don't know. Who knows? We're going to see where this goes. So, uh, yeah, we are bringing back horror journalist Ari Drew. Ari, well, welcome back. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me back after... I, we talked about murder and all these really horrific things in the last episode. You are by far, I think, the most chill guest who brings us the the darkest shit, which is sort of like a nice <laughs> little it's it's a nice little uh, niche to own. I think as a podcast guest, I I love it. I'll take that. Um, yeah, I tend to. I really find that whenever I'm allowed to pick movies to discuss on podcasts. I picked some heavy shit. And uh, the funny thing is that I picked this one because I thought it would be fun. <laughs> and then I rewatched it and I was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty dark at times. <laughs> and the end's really dark. Anyway, uh, yeah, whatever. It's it's my curse, but I'll I'll own it. And yeah. like we'll, we'll get into it in a little bit, obviously, when we talk about the film itself. But I did laugh at the fact that our group text, you know, our group DM that we had when we're trying to plan this, <laughs> you sent a message. And you're like, oh, I remember like I didn't remember this being as trashy as it was. So I was expecting something funnier, something more akin to a like trash midnighter. And I'm sitting there watching <laughs> this going like, I don't know. When does it get trashy? <laughs> because this is heavy shit. I'll have to explain what I meant by that, but it like really captures a certain and, and I may be tra- I, I was trashy in the line of kind of like sleazy and ch- and cheap at times as far as like violence and just kind of how it how it comes at you real hard. So, yeah, we can we can get it definitely dive into that in a bit. Oh, we'll get into that. That's going to be fun. So uh, you have been on the podcast before, Ari, and you have talked mm-hmm. about sort of your history as both a horror lover and a horror journalist. Um, so I would mm-hmm. recommend our listeners go listen to the Poughkeepsie tape episode. Didn't even, wasn't even close to getting that out. Didn't even back <laughs> up and try and do it. Uh, go to that episode, listen to what Ari has to say. But when I logged on, you were in the middle of kind of an interesting conversation uh, about moving. And so I want to do as, as two, you know, two thirds of our podcast have at some point in the last few years moved and had to sort of rebuild their 
their community and their horror community in new cities. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that I would like to talk about to kick us off here a little bit today is as film lovers, especially coming out of like this pandemic environment, you know, if you're thinking that you want to go to a new place, how do you build a film community in a brand new city? And Ari, I think you probably are are, our leading expert on that, having just gone through that process. Yeah, um, I guess maybe it's not quite the same for me because I, with the move, the cities that we were considering moving to kind of made sure that we already had like a nice social source of social support there, particularly with regard to film, because of course my, my husband works in film and writes and needs to be in places where it's easy to see, you know, good screeners and have a good community there. Um, so, but I will say that I was fortunate enough to already know a couple of wonderful film loving folks, filmmakers here in Denver. And, uh, the, one of the first things I saw, they do run, uh, this is uh, Brad McCarg and Becky Sayers. They run uh, trivia at a horror, a horror bar called Slashers. And so um, I actually have been pretty proactive about, you know, going to that and meeting other fans and people that they know here and then going to other trivias and meeting new people and kind of exploring. I don't really, I, I you know, like I'm not really shy about meeting new folks at bars and making quick friends. So Uh, Yeah, kind of looking for the horror trivia scene. And then I got an idea of what was going on as far as uh, just different community events, Mm -hmm. screenings and fun horror meetups and stuff like that. And so, uh, yeah, you just I guess you just got to search out the right places and the right people. And I don't know. I also I'm I'm a queer man. So, I you know, I end up at queer places and a lot of queer people love horror. So that helps as well for me to to have gotten plugged in here. But it was definitely an adjustment after having been in the same place for a long time. But luckily, you know, the pandemic showed us that we can connect with people all over the country. And, you know, two of you being being those kinds of folks for me. And even though, mm-hmm. Matt, you and I lived in uh, Austin at the same time. But we were really bad about baking hangouts. Happening. Oh, God. Like there horrible. were texts. Like, I think there was a couple of times when Trace and I were like, we're definitely coming to movie night or whatever. And it just never happened. So, <laughs> yeah, be a culpa to the extreme on that for me. Yeah, you're fine. I mean, again, it's uh, I had no shortage of, you know, film loving friends. And it's kind of something that I, I tend to seek out. I don't know. I just I love talking about films and I love horror and I love, you know, talking to other people who write about horror because it's it's my bread and butter. It's my comfort. It's what keeps me sane, honestly. So, yeah, just a lot of uh, very proactive work on my part. And I'm but I'm an outgoing person for the most part. So. Um, I kind of I've lucked out here. It's been nice. I found a really nice community here. I think it's always funny, um, you know, like I like when I moved to L.A., I definitely uh, picked L.A. in mind of the same thing you said, Ari, of, well, I know people here, you know, I'm moving to mm-hmm. a place where I have a community set already. And these are people that I've met at festivals and good friends who have moved to L.A. and all these things. But I think the funniest part after living here, you know, three plus years, maybe lockdown doesn't count, obviously, but still having lived here long enough to have a social life and do things, you know, I mean, I see these people at film festivals and we're great friends and we see each other for like a week at a time, 10 days at a time. And then I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm actually moving to your city. Like we're going to see each other all the time. But hilariously enough, like the people I see the most here now, half of them are just like brand new friends I've made through, through other people. And like some of the people I see the least, I saw way more when I didn't live here and would just go to film festivals. It's just such a funny little dynamic that happens when all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. like you go to a place and you're there and it's easy to see somebody. So like you never end up doing it. Um, We just did like a hangout recently with like Darina and Haley 
and Angel Fango and all these people. And like, we're just sitting there going like, why don't we do this more often? And like, that was the actual <laughs> question. And we all sat at each other like, we're actually going to do this more often because we're dumb and we just don't do like the proactivity of it all. So yeah, it's, I think building that community is actually doing it. You know, that's the hard part. It's yeah. easy to put yourself in the place. It's hard to actually, you know, Ari, you're, you're doing trivia all the time. Like you have Brad and Becky and you go out and do things with them. I see your social media uh, posts and stuff like that. So it's like, you just got to do, put the work in and like, it all kind of falls exactly. into place. It's like any relationship. It's It takes multiple sides, you know, putting an effort and making it work and reaching out. And, and luckily, like, I have friends here that love films that I really like being around. So I most I see them, you know, pretty much weekly. And we watch a lot of movies and talk about movies. And it's really it's really lovely, actually. I did have that in Austin, you know, the 10 plus years I lived there. But it's kind of like a, a more intimate thing here just because I don't I don't know as many people here. So I, I value those little times I have with the people I do know well um, as much as as much as I can. OK, wait, this is my question for you. Uh-huh. Well, it's a two part question. <laughs> Number one, what is the food you miss the most from Austin? Number two, what is the food you've been surprised by the most in Denver? Interesting. Oh, that's a good question. Those are good questions. Uh, food I miss the most in Austin. Oh gosh. Okay, this is this is silly because it's a it's a chain, but they don't have it here. So it's a Papacitos <laughs> restaurant. It's a Mexican chain, like in the Papa's family. So there's like Papa Doe, the seafood one, and then a steakhouse. Papacitos had like I literally for whatever reason every birthday I would have a dinner there in Austin and it's I don't know it's just like very comforting it's so fucking good I I don't know so I miss that so I actually have been trying to hunt down like good kind of you know something between Tex-Mex and authentic Mexican food I found some some places here but nothing quite quite matches that so yeah that's definitely one of them um here oh gosh I don't know what I've been surprised by you know what actually so i i when i lived in new york for college for undergrad um i spent a lot of time eating at like ray's pizza and like pizza you know which is the one near my my dorm uh, freshman year is genuinely fantastic it's it's kind of like a new york chain but um yeah so i've been missing kind of like streets like really good Mm-hmm. New York style pizza. And there are a couple places here that have really fantastic slices. So I'll get like for my first few weeks here, I was getting like two slices for lunch every day. Like I lived in the city and it was, <laughs> it was interesting. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, that Denver, <laughs> that authentic Denver pizza, but uh, it's, they're really fucking good. So shout out to uh garlic knot and oh, the other one's called like pizza 76 or something. So yeah. Anyway, pizza surprise with the pizza for sure. I like this line of, of questioning and selfishly I like it because uh, my, my wife and I are starting to have those first thoughts, inklings, planning sessions about what happens when we leave Austin because um, Texas mm. was was never going to be our forever home. And we're kind of getting into a window now. We have two nephews that live up in New York City uh, out on Long Island. We're starting to think, OK, what is where in the Northeast could we settle down and stay for you know effectively the worst the, the uh, rest of my working life? But it's these sort of things that like it's it's, you know, kind of a, a, a proposition before where like you you move because of opportunity for most of your career, especially when when you're younger and then mm-hmm. moving because of a place that you are like you get to a point in your career where like the opportunity will follow no matter what. So I want to like pick a place that I can feel that I can like have a sense of community in that I can that I have access to the things I want to have access in it's a weird little inventory thing where you're like, okay, yeah. what, what food do I want? Like what art is important? 
definitely yeah. need a bookstore, but do I, you know, do I need like a local stage theater so I can do like musical theater or something? Is that a priority? Is it not? And it's, it's an interesting process too, of being like, all right, if you choose a place where you don't know anybody uh, or think about a place that you don't know anybody, how do you do that as a, somebody that will be probably in their forties when I decide to make that move? How do you sort of like start over socially in a way that feels good and, mm-hmm. but doesn't, you know, isn't overwhelming or isn't kind of um, oppressive and making you feel like you're, you've lost all the things that you used to love about where before. So it's like big philosophical life-changing questions. And it really helps me to think of it in terms of like, got a pizza place, you know, like as, as silly <laughs> as that is, that's really like, yeah. that's an achievable outcome where you're like, found a pizza place that I really like. I'm good. I have one thing there that I know that I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seriously. Whenever we were, um, you know, when I was doing my interview process that landed me here for my, for my other career, for my, for mm-hmm. my PhD stuff, um, we had a spreadsheet that literally ranking different factors from one to five based on cities, based on, you know, availability of, honestly, one of the things was that Trace was really big on was like, is there an Alamo draft house there? There was a huge thing. And actually, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, holy shit. Yeah. I'm going to kind of need that like for my well being. Yeah. <laughs> like I need, I need my place where people are, you know, not allowed to talk at the movies, which, you know, having been to a few non draft house theaters recently, it's not my favorite experience. So, you know, those things were all part of the consideration. And literally it came down to like numbers. Like we each got to, <laughs> to rank different cities and, Luckily, Denver kind of hit a really nice sweet spot with like access to all the things that we really like, still having close access to like festivals. And especially the new thing is like near the mountains. I really love the mountains and like small, cute little towns and stuff and doing many trips for the weekend just in a nearby town. And so we've been uh, exposed to that kind of energy here, which I I really love. And then there's a lot of spooky shit, which I especially love. We're, we're really close to like Stanley Hotel and things like that. It was it was funny for me because when I moved at, at the age of 30 out of the East Coast, essentially, like I hadn't really gone farther than Texas. Um, I did visit L.A. and that's why I knew it was in the running, let's say. But I mean, my two places I picked were either L.A. or Austin. Like those were my two because I knew I had communities there. I knew I had people in both cities that I would fall in with very quickly. Uh, but I mean, my biggest thing was kind of weather. Like I was done mm-hmm. with the cold. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I picked two extremes to say like, no, I want, I want, I'm done with seasons. We're going to do things in a way of course, before I knew Texas got some pretty bad snowstorms, obviously that we all mm. saw how things happened. <laughs> um, but I mean, like yeah. the, br- the breaking factor for me was the humidity, like, like getting down to the nitty gritty. And I'm just like, I've been in Austin where I've been sweating just from walking outside. It's so humid oh, yeah. versus LA and like the dry heat. And like, that was just such a huge thing to me. I, pizza was another one i was like do i i'm gonna lose pizza no matter what but what am i trading it for and i kind of was like (laughs) i can trade it for tremendous tacos and burritos i do miss barbecue don't get me wrong barbecue is a hard fight to say like if i could have had austin barbecue all the time i was probably it wasn't gonna end well so i was like i might as well just be (laughs) visiting austin and getting my fill whether that's south by or fantastic fest um, which, you know, I'm going to kickstart again, thank God. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, it, it's so funny, those things you think about, and they seem so non-important when you are picking, let's say, but all of a sudden, yeah. when you get to the nitty gritty, when you start thinking about rating things, when you think about what makes you happy, you're like, 
oh no, these actually matter a whole lot. And it could be the tiniest little variation of humidity that's like, no, nah, that's LA. Like, like that was the mm-hmm. game changer. Yeah. Yeah, I just went back to um, the ACL Music Festival the first weekend, uh, beginning of October, and got off. I got out of the airport immediately drenched within like 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. It was horrible. And I can't, and just, it made me think like, how did I do this for 12 years? Like, this was just really, <laughs> it was really jarring to to go from here to there. So yeah, I'm, I'm all about getting back into the dry heat when we have heat. And actually the winters here have, hasn't been so bad so far. And I'm not a snow person. I hate snow. I hated it more in New York city though. So this is um, yeah. more manageable for me. Yeah. The thing that, I mean, weirdly the thing that i miss the most about new york and that i'm potentially looking forward to getting back if we move back to the northeast is bodegas like bodegas just are not a thing in austin texas nope and so like if i want to get a bagel i gotta go to a goddamn bagel place like i'm living in the middle of the midwest nowhere like (laughs) you should just be able to go to the guy at the counter and be like bacon egg and cheese please and they'll be like we have that and it has been it's been it's really taught me that I would probably give up. I would probably give up Tex-Mex for like access to good bagels on a regular basis, which is a wild statement. But yeah, I just I miss that bagel life. I miss living that bagel life so much. <laughs> I, I can understand it. The uh, the street slices you mentioned that before, Ari. Mm, that, that's my yeah. big thing. Now, anytime I go back to the East Coast and I get to visit mm. Brooklyn and I get to visit New York, it is I, I have this favorite slice that is an elote pizza. And Ooh. it is so goddamn good. And I got that like twice when I was at Brooklyn Horror Festival. And then I was getting like, you know, my, my penny vodka slice, my chicken parm slice, like mm-hmm. just walking into like Rosa's Pizza or like Mama 2 or something like that and walking out and just on the way to the next bar, you're just eating your dinner on that. like, <laughs> sl- on, like The flimsy, like oil covered oh, paper, that plate. Yeah. Paper plate. It's yeah. like it's trans transparent at that point. <laughs> and like the misunderstanding that L.A. kind of doesn't really have much of that. Like that culture isn't there because L.A. is such a big spread out city in a way. And mm-hmm. even downtown doesn't really have a lot of those options. It's, that was that was a little interesting to me. Not that it surprised me. Uh, I did go into L.A. knowing what I was getting into. But yeah, like not having the bodega culture and not having the street slice culture, even though you'd compare LA to New York so easily that was, that was a, uh, you know, I'm still trying to deal with that some nights when it's 1am and I'm like, I want that bodega sandwich so bad. But the only thing open <laughs> is like delivery Burger King. Like there aren't even diner. Options. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The di- yeah. Late night diner orders and like uh, all of that stuff. Like my favorite slice when I go back is a lasagna slice. I always love me some some of that lasagna slice. So that's what I try to get whenever I whenever I go back to visit. Well, I can wax poetic about food and location all day. <laughs> always, um, I do want to I do want to give you a chance, Ari, to kind of like weigh in a little bit on the horse scene too, because this is a conversation we've repeated a bit with our guests. It's like what's mm-hmm. excited, what you're excited about on the horizon, what you're seeing from the industry right now. And this is kind of a good time to have that conversation because it's January. We've just seen a couple of high profile releases. We've mm-hmm. had a nice blend even now of like studio films like Megan, streamer films that people are excited about, like Sick. There's just a lot of a lot of good stuff happening. And then a few films coming out this weekend that we just won't talk about. But there's a lot of really, like really good things mm-hmm. happening uh, in horror right now. So let me ask you this is sort of the other thing um, I'd love to hear your opinion on, which is. What are, how are you, what are you looking forward to in 2023 from a horror perspective? What, uh, what's got you excited? Um, so I will say like having, um, I, I'm a diehard slasher fan through and through. So the Scream, the new Scream film coming out obviously is something that 
I've, I'm obsessed with already. I'm, you know, I've seen the trailer 5 million times because that's what I do. And then, and then I'll go see it in theaters probably like six or seven times. And uh, yeah, so definitely that's like, that's kind of a given. I think if you, if you've ever followed me on social media, that's, that's kind of my fanboy moment always. But um, I actually just wrote a piece for Bloody Disgusting on liminal horror, um, which included uh, interviews with the directors of Skinnamarink, The Outwaters, uh, a film that came out earlier this month called Landlocked, and Zach Donahue, who uh, he did The Den a while back, which is amazing. Um, one of my favorite found footage films. And uh, But he just released a limited horror series, uh, kind of like a, it's a liminal horror um, Lovecraftian really unique web series called the unknowable so that was uh something i just kind of decided to do on a whim i just started contacting these folks because i was seeing threads between the films and the projects and just kind of like how it was really capturing the same vibes of kind of like i would say like something familiar that becomes particularly uh you know, a little bit alien for some reason or another, because people disappear because it's not how you remembered it being. And I think that there's something really interesting in like this post nostalgia, I won't say post nostalgia, but this idea of like, you know, we've had a run of so many nostalgia fueled, uh, you know, requels and reboots and just films and, you know, the stranger things and film form, you know, a lot of that jumping back into the eighties and nineties. And so I think this is a really interesting way for filmmakers to kind of look at that, I guess, like look at the past and their own memories and things like childhood, things that we've kind of idealized in the past in a more realistic way with some distance. And so these projects all kind of had that. Um, if you're familiar with like uh, liminal um, spaces, like there, there's a lot, there's, you know, a subset of folks on the internet who are obsessed with that imagery, but I actually like learned about liminality through this, high strangeness show that I love called Hellier. And so it's just kind of this uh, idea of being in between two trans two spaces uh, of transition, essentially. So I centered a whole article around that because I thought that that was a really fascinating approach. And it's a lot of DIY stuff, um, films made really on the cheap, but they're so effective because they tap into kind of real, I guess, like the realities of realizations of like, holy shit, that thing I remembered so fondly, you know, for really to look at it and pick it apart, there was maybe some darkness there or something there that wasn't quite as cheery as I remembered. And so, yeah, those films, all the ones that I've mentioned, I've, Outwaters is officially coming out next month. And I, um, I, I love that. That's already, that's one of my favorite films. I've seen it quite a few times, but um, that's, you know, that's a big one. Um, I'm always intrigued to see an M. Night Shyamalan movie, whether I end up liking it or not. So I'm really excited to check out Knock of the Cabin. Um, Sick was amazing, by the way. Loved Sick. I had so much fun with it. Um, yeah, and I'm excited for Infinity Pool, which uh, I believe comes out next week. Um, but I'll, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Just the, the I, you know, Matt, you know, uh, monogle that i i really love me like a dark slow burn and we we have that in common with some some of our favorite films so anything like that you know i'll eat it up this year so as long as i can keep getting stuff like that uh i'm all about it but i, I but i am appreciating that uh, films are having fun again it feels like it's okay to like be silly and kind of stupid sometimes like megan was fun it wasn't you know it's not my favorite movie of the year but i had a lot of fun watching it and it was a fun theater experience and you know after the the months and months and months of lockdown that that can't be you know the 
the value and the experience of seeing a horror movie with people that's fun it's can't be overstated i i really love doing that again yeah i mean like that that the idea of fun is prevalent today if we're gonna you know not to date this podcast episode and the day we're recording it but uh we do know that yeah zach Krieger just got an eight figure deal on his next movie because of barbarian yeah. and you know what you're saying about fun and what you're saying about i love that the year is starting with a, a groundswell of support for movies like the outwaters skin em rink these these low low budget films that live in this area that you very described uh, ari and are succeeding on that level but i'm also very excited for the future that i think studios are realizing we, we do want that fun we do want mm-hmm. the barbarian type movies as well to be in theaters they have to get people in seats but not to say a24 branded horror has shaped the horror landscape for a little bit but it has and barbarian felt mm-hmm. really goddamn fresh and i'm hoping that this massive deal and like god bless i eight eight figures on a movie that he wrote a script for and was they had 24 hours like literally they sent the script out and within 24 hours it had that deal that's crazy is it you know a commentary on maybe overspending i don't know we're we're doing a sight unseen eight figure (laughs) deal but anyway all all the blessings to mr krager like that is amazing but yeah I'm, i'm excited for a return to if we can get back to like the dark castle entertainment era oh, of, yeah. of the early 2000s and mainstream horror is bringing that back i would be so excited and it's like it, i hope we have both obviously i hope we have what you already described ari with the liminal stuff and you know theaters getting back into the fact that we don't have to churn out the same studio approved bs over and over again but i think the last thing in this all and why these films are succeeding because on both sides whether it was barbarian whether it was skin and it was an extremely individual and personal story, you know, like that is a mm-hmm. creator allowed to explore their originality and to their greatest expanse and say, you know, I, I, I'm going to do what I want to do because that's going to give the best product. And I think that's the biggest thing that, again, I hope continues. It's this idea that filmmakers should lean on their voice and they should lean on their originality. And I know that's always been there but it always hasn't been allowed, let's say, and it's always not what has come to the mm-hmm. forefront. So if if the future is what we're looking at based on what we've seen so far in the last few months, I am very hoping that studios and producers are learning that uh, it's better to let a filmmaker to do, you know, take that big swing and whether it succeeds yep. or doesn't, it, it's I'd rather see the uh, 50% Rotten Tomatoes movie that has 10 star reviews and zero star reviews than the 90% one that has a bunch of threes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. And to that, to that point too, like barbarian and movies like Nope, like I think they work well because they're different enough. Like they, they don't just give you, Oh, this is like an alien story. And this is a, you know, like a monster in the cellar story type of thing. It's they're fucking weird. And, and something about it taps in has tapping into um, the mainstream tapped into it. Even like they want something different. They don't want predictable in the same way. And I like that these, these films like have, you know, really interesting themes and imagery and structure and people are into it. And I think that that's what makes me really excited for the future and and letting a lot of these uh, creators and and first time directors who have these really unique visions, letting them do their thing. Like, let's just let people do their thing. Let's, let's stop having, you know, the wine scenes of the world dictate what happens in the next horror hit. So that's, that's my, my, my opinion on that as well, Matt. 
And I feel like I kind of want to naturally segue there to talk about this film, because I think that, that if nothing else, Horseman is such an interesting artifact of how a film can both chase a contemporary trend and do some things that are just utterly like barbarian, you know, the idea mm-hmm. of unique visions and largesse and excess from a film. So I say, let's take a, a minute away so you can hear some wonderful thing from our patrons and let's, uh, let's jump into some conversation about Horseman. So we'll be back in just a second. Hey everyone, Matt Monagle here, uh, taking a break from today's episode to say thank you so much to those of you out there who have supported us who've supported the website certifiedforgotten.com in any number of ways by supporting our Patreon, by donating a couple of dollars every month to make sure that we can continue to pay our writers by leaving us a review. We've got a lovely review uh, earlier this month from a new friend in Queens. So thank you to those of you who take the time to leave reviews for us on platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, you know, all the, the myriad other ones that I don't need to mention today. You know, we talk about this a lot, but if somehow this is the first episode that you're listening to, Certified Forgotten is a labor of love between myself and Matt Donato. It is the little engine that could, and we are just in a lucky position to be able to pour our time, talent, and treasure into the website and into the podcast to keep it afloat when you know big business and private equity firms are killing other publications out there. So your continued support means the world to us. And as always, if you want to learn a little bit more about the website if you want to learn a little bit more about how we're covering films outside of the podcast please 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 visit www.certifiedforgotten.com that number once again www.certifiedforgotten.com back to the show all right hey welcome back and this week on the podcast we are talking about horseman which is a 2009 procedural horror film i guess is what you would call it that's directed by jonas ackerland um who has a lot of different titles and i think that i was going to talk about a few of the films that he's worked on since then in detail because i know that you're a big fan of, of one of them in particular so i'll let you dig into that a bit but this tells the story of a detroit cop who after losing his wife buries himself in his work and ends up chasing a underground quadrology of serial killers uh, a group of interconnected people who uh, define their methods and methodologies after the four horsemen of the apocalypse um, as each member of the serial killer group co-op comes to light dennis quaid's character finds himself inching closer and closer to an outcome he does not want it's got a really good cast it's got maybe my favorite cast of, of a horror film that i've seen in a long time it's got zhang ziyi it's got lou taylor pucci who um, is uh, the lead from Spring, if everybody here needs to remember why we love him so much. That is Clifton Collins Jr., because every movie of this type for a certain, you know, about a 15-year period <laughs> did have Clifton Collins Jr. Patrick Fugit, Peter Stormare. It's a good group of actors, and they are playing the types of characters that they play best. But as we always do, I'm going to start by turning metaphorically to our guest Ari and saying, why'd you pick this movie? That is such a good question. I think the answer is um, probably dumber and simpler than <laughs> than you might hear. But I want to say, did it? Did you not? I feel like you all covered a film with a similar title recently. Did you not? It was like so for it? for uh, for our uh, Patreon content series, which is Film School from Hell, where Donato has me write about things um, that I haven't seen before because I'm a squish. 
uh, I, we wrote about The Horseman, which is a 2010 yes. <laughs> Australian thriller, which is actually extremely good. Um, and I, I do remember that that you even back then on Twitter were like, oh, I, this made me think of Horseman. So you really you, you kind of took that ball and ran with it. And I love you for it. I sure did. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think uh, I, I love true crime and um, procedurals and neo-noir and, you know, a lot of films in this vein. Um, and this kind of hits it just hits a sweet spot for me. I saw it a bit after it was released, so I didn't even see it, you know, in the wake of the torture porn stuff that, you know, we see influence a lot of this and the hostels and saws and all of that, you know, so I just kind of saw it. Um, I want to say like Trace showed it to me when we were dating early on, but I remember being really pleasantly surprised because it is very twisty and it's kind of, and when I say trashy for me, it's kind of just like, it, it really has that late 2000s crime thriller vibe, a little bit like untraceable, um, you know, some of the other, you know, serial killer uh, procedurals of the time, but it just is, it feels so exploitative in so many ways, especially by today's, you know, I think I think honestly some of the stuff in this film today people would probably be like really pissed off or really up in arms about or think that it was like emotionally manipulative and it is like it's very of the time um but I just thought it was I think it's a fascinating movie like some of the performances against the writing against the tone it's just so jarring and disorienting so it's a really unique experience um it's not the best film I've seen obviously but it's a uh, it kind of hit some sweet spots and I have, and honestly I had a lot of fun with it. And again, cause I like kind of like some nasty shit. So, so when you can kind of be really cruel at times and, you know, have these really kind of bombastic uh, kills that, that have a lot of like really intense emotion and, Oh yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot that this movie uh, does. That's fun for me. And I thought when I noticed that it didn't even have, but a few reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I was actually really shocked just considering the cast and at the time. But uh, hey, whatever. I got to got to throw it at y'all. And so thank you for for abiding and giving it a ride. Is that, is that my turn, uh, Mr. Monagle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Donato, I want to ask you. I'll, I'll, I'll play this off so we can keep it in the edit. I, I wanted to ask you, was this your first time watching Horseman? It very much was. And I'm glad you asked that question because I did want to say how often I saw the poster for Horseman on Netflix, uh, like in the early days of streaming or, you know, anywhere. I, I don't know why, but this poster is so prevalent in my mind. And to find it had five total reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, I was gobsmacked because, Monogal, you mentioned the cast. I mean, we're starting with Des Dennis Quaid, uh, uh, Lou Taylor Pucci, who had not been in like Evil Dead and stuff yet. Um, Patrick Fugit, like all these talents, you're Clifton Collins Jr. playing a, a character actor role that he like, again, he was made to do even Eric Balfour and like Peter Stamare, just two mm. character actors doing their thing. Um, it, it just to find it had so few, so goddamn few um, critic ratings baffled me. And I, I tweeted out, I was just like, how does this have as many critic reviews as it has? Uh, and Mr. Richard, who is on the podcast uh, at, at one point with us, informed me that it was basically buried by Lionsgate on theatrical. Uh, I think like the haunting of Connecticut came out in two weeks or something. So they put all their eggs in that basket, but uh, it did have a DVD push. So I guess that might explain it in the sense where critics aren't going to touch it. Once it goes to DVD, you have to do theatrical mm -hmm. or nothing. Um, but I was just like, so thrown by that. And, the film itself, it made me think 
of all the torture porn stuff already a hundred percent like you're trying to capitalize on the saws and the hostels and whatever came out in that time with some pretty graphic imagery but you're also doing you know we uh, with john barkhan who's on the podcast and we did you know uh the, the crimson whatever film that we uh covered and it was a religious true crime serial killer kind of flick <laughs> that went full bore into the religious aspect and all of a sudden you have like monks and priests and it goes full force into it where i feel like horseman dangles the religious uh nature of it as Mm a influence and kind of doesn't go as deep into it as i would have liked it's not like a seven or anything like that where Mm -mm. it's really getting into the mythology but no i was just i i was thrown by how capable it was for how underseen it actually is yeah and it's it seems to hit we kind of talked about this before the break but it seems to hit it's sort of a really transitional period in a lot of different ways um, it hit at the period, and I remember very distinctly because, you know, this was the time of my life where I was living in Alaska and just like trying to find ways to kill time. 2009 was sort of the the period where streaming went from something that was sort of like a curio to like a mainstream way of consumption. Um, 2009 is a bit removed from the peak of what we consider the torture porn cycle Mm -hmm. so a film that was sort of operating still in that mode a little bit though we'll talk about that and i argue this is doing something different um you know it would have felt a little out of date it would have felt like you know a late comer to that particular curve uh and this also i mean let's be honest here this was sort of the beginning of the end of of dennis quaid's first phase of his career as a quintessential leading man i mean this movie came out the same year as pandorum which is another interesting departure for him mm-hmm. in the type of roles that he normally does uh, but not a movie that i would think of as, as successful uh in any way shape or form you know i i think that this just this was kind of like the wrong film at the wrong time um on, uh, through the wrong distribution channels for a lot of different reasons and I, it's i'm glad that richard weighed in and kind of shared the the perspective that he did have because yeah i can understand how something that was like don't worry guys we'll make our money back on on physical media in 2009 would have been just like a dagger in the back for uh for this film and and which otherwise has a lot of things going for it i want to talk about about since we started with the notion of um torture porn and ari i'm going to kick this back to you would you describe this as torture porn do you think that this belongs in sort of the same breath as things like hostile um you know any insert an eli roth movie here do you, does it feel like that kind of a movie to you? Because it doesn't quite feel like that kind of a movie to me, although it certainly like at times moves a lot like one of those types of films. And I can understand why watching a trailer, you would feel like you're just about to get like Eli Roth, Roth retread here. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of like the Saw franchise and the Hostel films actually. And uh, this is, you know, it's very different I, because I, I don't, I don't think that like in those movies, the gore and the violence and the torture aspect of it are meant to be the forefront of the story. I think that there there's imagery that definitely calls back to some of the gruesomeness of those films. And, you know, when you see things like someone putting a contraption on someone's uh, face to keep their eyes open, you know, you're, that, that kind of elicits a certain memory of like, Oh God. Yeah. That's very saw like. And, and some of these, um, you know, the the layouts, even a little bit of, uh, because of, of course, like the suspension device that the killers use to display victims and to torture them, essentially, um, that it is a little 
saw like it is very trap like so um so in that sense you know that's kind of where it gives that vibe but again it is kind of just a unique amalgamation of a lot of different influences i feel like and and some of the imagery too is very like seven it's not as stylized i'd argue but uh but it's there and so yeah i, I do feel like there's echoes of it but yeah I, I'd, I'd be more apt to agree with you in that it's not i wouldn't categorize it as part of that whole torture porn or neo torture porn post torture porn world yeah there's some influences but yeah just here and there yeah again the influences are graphic imagery of fetuses and graphic imagery of maybe like a flash to a death sequence very quickly but you know i'm thinking of one simple character death with a bone saw that we don't really see anything it's not that it wants to show you the saw cutting into bone and you know, rib cages and stuff like that. It's more about the character who is forced to watch this and the character who is forced to live with the action that they have seen versus the audience reveling in the gratuity that is happening off camera. So I think the influences are absolutely there because it is still in just in grasp of the torture porn era. But I thought more of to mention the Poughkeepsie tapes again, like, I, I, you know, it's it's actually hilarious that you brought this to us, Ari, because I, I thought of that movie a ton um, following our last conversation and the way that this is very much looking at the footage, looking at things of that nature, talking to the criminals who are like mocking the detectives to their face and don't care about what they're doing. So that that is the more I think the more prevalent theme It, it is more of a detective played by a, you know, Dennis Quaid and how he might neglect his family and he works too much and how that's going to take a toll on them and stuff like that. Um, and also it's like a, it's an internet thriller in a way. Uh, I know it's not really shown that mm. much, but the four horsemen, let's say, and the people connected doing the killings, they're connected by chat rooms and they're connected by dark web stuff. And they're connected by everything in the den and unfriended dark web and all that, all those other films that have since come out and tried to really capitalize on, on the evilness that can, well, number one, the evil that lurks on these uh, chat rooms and the evil that lurks in the nether regions of the web and how that can influence others and drive them to do things. So, you know, it, again, it's not a forefront theme where this is taking place online and it's not a screen life movie, but in the background, when you realize like this is a commentary on internet culture as well, like that it's these little things keep like bubbling up throughout the film and they may not hit you in the face, but they're there. And you're like, okay, so you're like trying a few things here. It's not just a cut and dry serial killer case. Oh, go ahead. No, I think to, um, you know, something uh, Donato to your point is the way, you know, kind of what is the focus here? Like what are the, sh where are the shocks coming from or the twists coming from? And it's not necessarily always the violence and the gruesomeness. It is kind of this like twisty morality, you know, around look at what you've done. Now you're going to, you're going to pay and you're going to have to witness this being done. And when, um, yeah, there's a few, a few moments where it really revels in that, but it also, in a way, like there's an era of film where topics like the death penalty, like life of David Gale and abortion and, you know, these highly politicized, um, you know, topics are kind of the crux of the film, of the film's themes and what it really is based around. And here, I think it's interesting because that, those kinds of movies, it feels like some of that influence is here because it's like, you know, it's touching on 
child sexual abuse and uh you know homophobia and gay bashing and uh and you know suicide at a point and and or attempted suicide so it's you know it's uh all this stuff that's like oh that's in poor taste like if you were to see a lot of these things used for shocks now people would probably be more likely to say it's in poor taste and i think in that time that's why it kind of really captures this era of film and of genre film in general where people didn't give a fuck they were going to talk about what they were going to talk about and show what they were going to show yeah i liked the i love that we've each come up with um kind of a different lens through which to view the way that the film does violence because for me the thing that it made me think of is broken people and sadomasochism of course i'm gonna it's clive barker all the time like i got Mm -hmm. strong clive barker vibes because the the violence and the distortion and like the body mod stuff is also very bloodless like yeah they don't it's not bogged down in like the graphic nature of it it's almost like elegant um in a way that shows me that like yeah like this is this is there's a little bit of barker love going on here this is not an accident uh hooks in skin and not a lot of blood and some like psychosexual cinematography i'm like that's good i i see what you're doing jonas ackerland and i like it but it is it is interesting to look back at this and i'd like you to actually unpack that a little bit more Ari, just because i know that this is your area of expertise in particular Mm -hmm. you know the notion of the way that this movie treats mental health is we have to play a little bit of a shell game as critics and you know donato and i probably because a lot of our stuff is relatively recent we probably don't get into the weeds as much with this as other podcasts do with the the notion of like relative morality or subjective morality when it comes to Mm -hmm. viewing this. But I think this is an interesting example because it is approaching its subject matter with a tenderness that is like surprisingly a big step above and beyond what a lot of its contemporaries were doing and Mm -hmm. yet still feels incredibly retrograde when run through the gamut of today's horror films. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's uh, maybe that's something I'd love to get your opinion on is when you look at something like this, 2009 isn't that long ago what is the what like what is the mental juggling act or 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 what are what are the the lens through which you're viewing something and and allowing it to be an artifact of its time a little bit yeah i think i um the way that i approach art in general and i'm not um i'm not someone who would ever advocate for censoring art and telling someone they can't show something they want to show no matter how upsetting it is i do think that there are reactions especially now that people should prepare themselves for if they choose to show certain things and that is just kind of how society is but the idea of like oh we need to ban xyz like i don't i can never get behind that because i do think art is uh you know censoring art is just kind of the it's a really really slippery slope as far as free speech and and expression but but i will say that you know with my obvious interest in psychology and which which also has a very very uh you know murky shadowy history behind it uh, one thing you know a couple concepts that i learned about a few years back that really helped me in the film world especially with a lot of talks around um appropriateness and morality and uh keeping safe spaces you know available for people who want to see films and trigger warnings and things like that is um this idea of presentism versus historicism and so in the realm of psychology uh, historicism is looking at things uh, in the from the perspective of the time in which they were developed or occurred. So, when we're looking at certain, you know, practices in psychology and ways of approaching research or treatment or or um, you know, kind of theories, um, it can be really easy to write everything off, you know, full stop as this was sexist, this was racist, this was homophobic. It was all of those things, and that is like undeniable. And also, 
there is some merit in understanding the context the context in which these things were allowed to happen or why they happened or why people were interested in them in this way and uh and it's always a lesson so i think it's it, you know it's kind of that historicism versus presentism presentism would be taking your perspective of what is appro uh, appropriate to put on film to a film that came out 30 years ago like there is such a disconnect there that it's like it just doesn't make sense to do that and I, it bothers me when people do that because that's just not how the world works. That's not how art works. And also like not how time works. So let's, let's kind of uh, get our heads wrapped around the context of films. Like, I think it's important, like film literacy around knowing when a film came out, came out and who the director is and who the writer was and what they're kind of all about and what they were about at the time, what was going on in society at the time. So things that maybe seem, I guess, like unsavory or, you know, really tacky to show on screen in one point in time, kind of were just the norm in another. And it's not, I don't think it's necessarily a situation where you're condoning, you know, anything being placed on, placed on screen, but it's like, that's how I like to engage with art. I think it's a conversation looking at it with curiosity. And so, yeah, so things like that, I, that's kind of how I try to do it. Like, let's take a historicist per perspective. Let's think about the context and the time and that uh, that makes it easier for me, I think, when I'm approaching movies that are a bit older, especially for when I haven't seen them before. Yeah, I mean, for, you know, obviously there's a scene in uh, the movie we're discussing that obviously like I will not repeat, but uh, Eric Balfour is playing a character who is very disapproving of his gay brother. And, mm -hmm. you know, he says some choice words over and over again. Uh, mm -hmm. But the movie is not advocating for that. And, you know, Ari, that's what you're saying about like the historical yeah. aspect of all that. Like this is a 2009 movie. And when you watch it, it's it's not advocating for the usage of that word. It's not, you know, giving anyone a pass for it. It is actually just it's a time capsule. It's like maybe we were using this too much in uh, in dialogue in 2009. And it's, it's mm -hmm. about looking back at it and why it was there and contextualizing that and the, seeing the growth since then versus the thinking that like, no, this you know, let's scrub this completely from every movie in history. It's like, well, we actually have to learn from it. Like it actually brings up a better subject to say like, okay, we just heard a word in this movie that was released in the two thousands. Um, why is that bad? Do we realize why it is bad? And you know, there's a reason why it's been changed. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's a hard conversation to have because we also have this conversation all the time nowadays because everyone wants to write off a problematic, you know, protagonist or something of that nature because yeah. no one wants to read into it. No one wants to, you know, art is not endorsement. Art is just creating a character. Like, there's nothing that says you have mm -hmm. to act like this character because this is what you see on screen. Like, no, you're actually supposed to have a little bit of more reading comprehension and look into it and look into why this character is doing what they're doing and why the filmmaker might actually be making a point with them versus saying, no, I've created this character. Therefore, this is what I believe in and who I like, who I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's, um, you know, hearing I'm not someone who hears the f-bombs and and gets very um immediately jarred in film for that sake like if i were to hear someone tell me that in real life which has happened in the last recent in recent years you know still happens um but uh that's a different effect so i think just kind of understanding what i'm going into if i'm choosing to engage with art that is you know rated r and has a lot of these themes and is you know kind of has nasty characters who are going to say and do nasty things you know, the Eric Balfour character is not meant to be 
viewed as like some kind of great dude and so yeah he would be talking to his brother like that he and that is a reality for a lot of people especially in 2009 but even now i mean and again like justin long drops the f-bomb in uh in barbarian and people were really mad and all i could think is like well he's supposed to be a piece of shit and there you go there's another piece of evidence that he is <laughs> so yeah there's a lot it's it the the character in question um i don't think it's a spoiler to say patrick fugit's character is the the character and eric Falforce's brother there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that we would read now as be like oh like the self-loathing gay tropes and things of that nature but mm-hmm. You know, I, I would be, I mean, if only we knew somebody whose husband uh, ran a podcast that explicitly looked at queer representation <laughs> and film through a queer analysis, I would be really interested to listen to, uh, to Trace talk about this on Horror Queers. I think this would be an interesting um, an interesting example for them because I think that, that he could really dig into that a bit. Yeah, I think that there would be, um, you know, again, that's, it's a mixed bag in the queer communities with certain language. Like sometimes people don't, like they can't even be comfortable with the word queer because a lot of the connotations of it when they were growing up and a lot of that is generational, you know, I work with a lot of younger folks now and that's very normal for them to refer to themselves in their communities as queer. So, you know, we, ha- there's a lot of consideration to be done. I think you just have to be willing to do that and curious about it as opposed to writ large, just writing it off. So I'm going to pivot like 180 degrees here, unless Donato, you have one more thing you want to throw in there at the end. No, I was just going to say, you know, there are movies that are meant to tackle that kind of issue. And I don't think Horseman is one of those. <laughs> <laughs> That's a no. really good. More so That's just a, really a product of its time. Yep. Well, let me ask you a question. And I don't want to be mean. I'm not a mean film critic. Donato knows I'm not a mean film critic. Ari knows I'm not a mean film critic. I, I do not like to be mean, but I have to ask. Does Dennis Quaid make this movie hard to watch? Like it is, it is. I understand why they cast him, and I understand why he would take that role. But I, I feel like there's just such a misunderstanding of the type of movie that he's in, in terms of like the uh, the way to play that character, the sense, the sincerity, like the the idea that you're. I don't know that the, the movie is what it isn't when everybody else in the cast and everything else about the film suggests they know exactly what type of movie they are. Is that, is that a, is that a catastrophic error for this film? And I'm sorry, Dennis, if you're listening, I, I, I gave, I have a positive review of the intruders or the, what is it? The intruder, whatever the, the, your one from a few years ago is I have a positive review of that film on Rotten Tomatoes. So you cannot be mad at me. <laughs> we love you, Dennis. Um, this movie in that way, he makes it camp. It is campy his performance you know it is like in in the truest sense like failed seriousness maybe i don't know who what his you know what what jonas was telling him during filming and maybe only him apparently but he he is kind of in a different movie and that's kind of uh, one of the reasons why i'm so drawn to it and a little bit into kind of what i was talking about like there's like a trash element in that like there's a lot of really horrific things going on and he's playing this character like really hamming it up and and in a way that's like atonal <laughs> and just like doing its own thing. And there are a couple of other other moments with some other of the villainous characters that come across that way too. But he really, for the most part, I would say like it's probably worse the first couple acts. I think in the you know the ending, I, I really actually do like it. I like his performance. I like how how that all plays out. But you're not being mean at all. No, he's it's he was chewing chewing up that whole set and uh hopefully he had fun 
Well, and I also think it doesn't help that the film does feel underwritten as parts. Uh, the yeah. entire relationship between Dennis Quaid and his two children as he's the hardworking cop who works all the time and he wants to go to hockey games with his kids, but he gets calls the minute they're leaving. These scenes are just so, I again, I don't want to say comical as in the <laughs> what is happening is comical in the sense that a father is neglecting his children. Uh, but it is hilarious when he's about to go to the sporting event and be a good dad and then this phone rings and like you know both kids just look at the phone and they just like hang their heads and they're like oh man and they just like taking their face paint off and stuff uh so you just have these moments that aren't i think the moment themselves just don't fit with the film that's trying <laughs> to happen uh but again we are talking about a movie where clifton collins's character is just named stingray like he just gets called stingray the whole movie <laughs> he's not a person he is just a cardboard cutout of a like partner for dennis quaid yeah, hearing Dennis Quay yell Stingray the way that he does too, like that that sent me when I watched it again. I was like, I do not remember that, and that is something I should remember from this movie forever. Stingray, <laughs> it's definitely memorable. Um, but yeah, Matt, I agree. Like that's uh, that's kind of the sense I got too. Like those scenes that are meant to be played on, like pulling at our heartstrings and really establishing this this relationship. All I could think is like, there's a version of this film where this man gets CPS called on him quickly and he doesn't get to solve any cases because he's gonna he is neglecting these children showing this kid you know letting this kid look at crime scene photos and it's just it doesn't work until it does for me and it only works for me at the end because i remember this movie having you know the kind of the whole twist of what happens um which i guess i don't know how much i want to how much we want to be explicit about that but if I you're mean, this far in on like, if you've been listening for an hour <laughs> to a podcast about horsemen, you, this is, this is what you can. <laughs> so, so the fact that, um, Lou Taylor Pucci, his son ends up being one of the, um, a part of this ring of killers and, and he wants to, he tries to kill himself using the machine and making Dennis Quaid w- watch it. And really, I remember the moment of watching Dennis Quaid go into the room and it's just like painted white and it's just like all you had to do was go into his room like that conceit as like a like a twist works really well for me the performance is in advance of that uh, okay um dennis we love you again go read matt's uh positive review of <laughs> the intruder or whatever i never saw that but um uh but yeah if it's a, if he's anything like uh in that like he is in this i'll, I'll happily watch that well, I want to pose a final question or, you know, a closing question, how we want to do it before we get to the end of the podcast. Um, but so that ending, we're, we're on it. We're talking about it. It's Lou Taylor Pucci, uh, the the ignored son of Dennis Quaid. And I, this is my question to you guys. Like, do they make the right choice with who is this ringleader for this entire group? Because the other horsemen have like legitimate abuse cases and have been through horrific shit. And like, they come to this group with a lot of trauma. And that is not to say Lieutenant Pucci's character didn't, you know, has no trauma. That is not to say that, you know, the death of his mother is weighs heavy and the neglect of his father has, has done something to him. But at the end of the day, like it's just the whiny white guy who is, who is kind of like the quote unquote villain of the end of the film where is there more impact if it actually addresses that like the other characters here might have gone through more things and yet they're just not in the picture anymore and they don't get the finale moment yeah i think for me so again it's kind of like leaning into the camp of it too like as much as i do think like the emotional um intention 
works for me more than it probably should here in that particular finale. Um, I would say I could believe it now. Um, I think at the time, you know, when I watched this some years, you know, I don't even know how long ago it was, maybe like a decade for the first time. Um, I remember thinking like, that's what he, he's that, he's that role. (laughs) That's interesting. Um, The idea of like, you know, did he kind of earn that role? I think, no, again, this is just like bias as someone who works clinically with young people pretty often. Kids are kids brains are just so mushy and not fully formed and they're impulsive and they do really crazy shit and so i could believe it getting to that point especially these days with kind of how kids grow up with the internet and probably go down the darkest rabbit holes before they're even in school these days so yeah i mean i could see it and also just speaking from traumatic perspective like you can't really you know, it's uh, not really necessary the nature of what happened. It's when it happened and how it impacted you. So, um, so I, I mean, as far as that goes, did he earn his membership? Sure. Yeah, I think if that's how if that's how he felt, I guess, and that's how he reacted to his mom's loss and blaming his dad for it and the aftermath of their family basically just falling apart and being neglected. I could see that. It didn't. It wasn't as outlandish for me. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I mean, again, there's just a, a big part of it that is about suspension of disbelief and leaning into the also the camp of it all. Yeah, it's it it is the suspension of disbelief, absolutely, and certainly a little bit of subjective morality when it comes to how that ending plays out. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, I I have two types of films, which is inexplicable. I have like three hour long slow burn horror movies where nothing happens in the last thirty seconds, and then I have movies like this. Those are my two modes. Uh, those are my two <laughs> looks as a horror fan. And what I find myself is I, I I grade movies like this on such a sliding scale. Like I'm I'm so into like the pieces that work for me and I pay so little attention to the stuff that doesn't. And one of the things that really works for me here is in an era where everything about the internet was a moral panic about like the corruption of youth, this film very explicitly points its fingers at the parents. Like across mm-hmm. the board, the, mm-hmm. you know, yes, you know, Zhang Ziyi's character is is played as the Hannibal Lecter of this movie. Absolutely. And that's great to see because she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But everything that happens to the characters that causes them to go this route is the failure of their support groups and the failure of their family. And the film doesn't try to present them within the bounds of 2009 cinema as abnormal or immoral or evil so much as in their own way victims. And I think that that's when you stack up all of the movies about the internet and how bad all horror films about the internet throughout the history, the number of movies that might position people that have gone evil or, or broken in some way because of the internet, but maintain a bit of grace for them. It's small. So this is, this falls into the minority of films, I think where they're like, yes, these are bad people, but nature versus nurture, right? Like they didn't, Mm -hmm. it didn't have to be this way. Most films just be like, yeah, bad from the beginning, broken from broken from birth. Like they, they were always going to grow up to be a serial killer. This movie suggests that they had a little bit of help along their way, which I find kind of relieving. Yeah, definitely. That's the, the nature versus nurture, I think, is a big part of resolving maybe some of that moral ambiguity in the film. And I mean, yeah, it's not he's no, uh, you know, we need to talk about Kevin's situation. So there's a lot of, you know, you know arguments to be made for how we get impacted and and again i know that people get very sensitive too about 
using mental health as um, and and things like trauma as a catalyst for someone being dangerous. Um, you know, oh gosh, that person is crazy. They're unhinged. They're going to become a serial killer. And you know that there there, is, there are lots of films that you know handle that in a really cheap way. But I think when you can reasonably draw a thread between you know something really horrific that happened to someone and their horrific reaction to it. That makes sense more logically to me, and I can and I can you know forgive some of that a little more. Um, so yeah, I do think it's it's really interesting in that way too. That's a good that's a good read, Monocle. And not even to say it doesn't work for me. It was just a a question. I was curious to see how it how it plays for everyone because I can see that ending now, and especially like you talking about being in the present and looking at things historically i can see that playing a certain way and not hitting some people but um yeah it was just you know it's just the way it turns out at the end you're you're both shocked but not because i hilariously uh was watching with amelia and five minutes before that scene i'm like i bet it's the it's the kid, right? Like the, the kids behind this all. So like, I, I don't know if the hor- horseman, sorry, not the horseman. I don't know if horseman uh, pulls off. It's who done it as well. Let's say as uh, some other films, but then again, it doesn't want to like, it gives you half of the villains again, they're not villains. I shouldn't say that, but it gives you half of the uh, horseman pretty early on. I think it, it's having mm-hmm. fun. And that campy element that you keep bringing up Ari. I think that is the right mindset to have when you watch. Horseman. Oh, yeah. Don't take it as seriously as maybe it takes itself at times mm-hmm. and i think that's the way that's the path of glory here that's why i thought y'all would have fun with it you know if you could if you could approach it through that lens why not you know it's uh and again with this cast it's pretty stacked for the time especially as far as genre people we love in the genre so um yeah i think uh that's how I choose to view it. And if I watch it again in the future, I will absolutely go in and describe it to the people I'm watching it with as, you know, kind of like a, a product of its time and also just like pure camp, you know, kind of graphic at times, but just really, you know, it's a mixed bag of different tricks and camp is one of them. So, yeah. Well, since you're talking about having to pitch this film to people in the future, that brings us to the last question, the question we always end with, which is, this movie has been forgotten. Is there a place for this movie to find an audience in the future? And if so, how does it get there? And Ari, I'm going to ask you to go first. Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, if for no other reason than, you know, kind of like a time capsule look at that whole um, the dark side of the internet's influence on younger folks and on really vulnerable people that is still super relevant um that i'm afraid it's it, it would just always be relevant there are always going to be young people who are vulnerable there are always going to be people who have gone through really terrible things that need community and sometimes they fall into bad communities and bad circles of people uh just to be seen and just to feel understood so that's maybe given this movie way more credit thematically than it than it really earns but i will say like it it could be kind of just a fascinating watch for some people who kind of want to jump back in time a little bit and and again it's like this class of film that doesn't really get made in this way anymore um so i definitely think it's it could find the, its own little niche audience and Twitter could be really helpful in that. If you threw that shit back on Netflix or something, people would probably eat it up at this point. Um, people love cr- true crime. People, for better or worse, people are really into things that are, you know, looking at let's uncover the killers and let's look at motives and, um, you know, that kind of obsession having been 
exploding in, in recent years more and more in the mainstream um, with that case, I feel like, yeah, there, there might be a place for it. Donato, what you got? I mean, can we just like comprehend the fact that uh, the snowman has 200 plus reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and Horseman doesn't? <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about campy true crime that maybe understands itself but doesn't at the same time, it, it is baffling to me that Horseman was so pushed under the rug while, again, movies like The Snowman, like which came out, what was that, 2017? So years later and stuff like that, and you got Fastbender in the lead role, but I, I, I am still aghast that more people haven't or i guess more people at the time didn't see horsemen so the only way we're going to get it back is uh again through streaming you're not really going to be able to do a boutique release on something that is Lionsgate and dennis quaid and all these things like it's out there it's not really going to get a resurgence that way uh you just need to pair it with the right true crime movies and you just need to pair it with things i would again i would even bring it up at in terms of like the Poughkeepsie tapes or films along that nature where it is true crime, but also very horror forward. Um, you know, again, we, we can do a nice little triple feature. Excuse me, Rogers. Um, we can do a nice little triple, triple feature of certified forgotten titles between Crimson River uh, that we did with John Barkhan, Poughkeepsie tapes, which we did with you and now <laughs> Horseman, <laughs> which we did with you. So, Someday when we get to program our uh, Certified Forgotten Film Festival, that will be a night. It will just be like true crime horrors. And I think people will underestimate Horsemen, but at the same time, well, actually, I think they'd underestimate it in two ways. They would un- underestimate the horror elements and then underestimate maybe the campy elements that we've brought up a few mm-hmm. times now. Yeah, there's a little bit of it that's uh, just to jump jump back in there. Um, that is reminiscent of like eight millimeter, you know, like that type of vibe of a film where it's a little sleazy. It's a little like over the top. It's some of the imagery is meant to be very shocking. And but it kind of all it doesn't really come together the way it probably intended to. Um, so I think even like with pairing of something, you know, a Nick Cage doing that kind of stuff that could probably work, too. It's just lacking that little bit of really brutal in your faceness that, let's say, Lords of Chaos, Mr. Ockerland's mm, uh, masterpiece. I, I waited until the end. I got out oh. of the conversation about Horsemen, but I adore Lords of Chaos. And I think oh, Horsemen, exactly. I think Horsemen's missing a little bit of that intensity. But then again, uh, Lionsgate maybe would not have been okay with that. So you're talking about a studio versus uh, how Lords of Chaos came to be. So it's it's missing that little spark of just really really gut punch disgusting uh just repulsiveness and i think that would actually make it more accessible to horror fans who might be talking about it a little more i'll only add that and maybe this is just me it might just be me and if you're listening to this and this if this sounds kind of wild to you then i apologize i am more likely to rewatch pandorum than i am to rewatch alien and the reason for that is because I know that Alien is brilliant. And I know that every time that I watch Alien, it will feel brilliant. But I never remember how I feel about a movie like Pandorum. And there's an element of excitement in rewatching something that you felt one way about, and maybe you feel differently about it in the future. And so to all of the points that you've made, Donato um, and Ari, about you know where this sits in sort of the lexicon of, of cr- true crime films, I am much more likely to watch Horsemen than seven going forward because i know seven's really good and i know when i watch seven i'll be like seven's really good but i'm going to be curious that there there is more opportunity i think for me to feel like i'm learning something about myself 
or learning something about how I watch movies from Horseman. And that's kind of true across the board for all of like these B kind of movies. I'll always watch a B movie before I watch an A movie. It's not the fact that like those movies aren't good. It's just my opinion is less set in stone and it's more fun to see if it chips around a little bit. It's more fun to kind of revisit that and see if you feel differently about it. So I think that's maybe where Horseman sits is the notion that like it's not an established classic. And so, yes, people won't revisit it regularly for that reason, but there might be people to might be people to go back to it because they saw it on the shelf at Blockbuster in 2009 or they remember watching it in the theater but remember nothing out. I didn't mention this before. I can't I truly don't know if I've seen this movie. I like I cannot remember for the life of me if I watched this movie or not. I was trying to figure it out the entire goddamn time. I think maybe I have, but I can't say with any degree of certainty. <laughs> and I think that's the target audience for this in the future. And I think that leads to actually like way more fun group watches too. Like if that's the vibe of the night, I, w- I I agree with what you're saying. I would rather show some people horsemen to be like, what the fuck do you think about this versus mm-hmm. seven? That's like, no, you're all going to like this. Like we, we all like seven. We all agree that it is a fantastic movie. I, I want to see that communal reaction and the conversation that happens when you watch horsemen versus the certified classic, let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah no. You. Agreed. Yeah. And I think too, there's that um, something just kind of fascinating about rewatching a film that has that throws so much at you from so many different, you know, from so many different sources, because it's like a different watch every time. Like you can watch it. You can watch it while drunk. You can watch it after smoking a little bit. You can watch it late at night. It's just kind of like going to elicit a different reaction because there's so much there and it doesn't all always work in the same watch. So I think, you know, this this watch is way different for me than the first time I watched it. I None of the camp stuff played for me. I took everything very seriously the first time, and I thought it was solid, but this was just a very different experience. So yeah, I think if you're willing to be a little adventurous and go into it looking for a different experience every time, this is definitely a movie that would probably do that for you. All right. There is the final word on 2009's Horseman. Um, I would recommend it is streaming on HBO Max. So if you are looking for uh, a movie to watch and you want to watch something that is not necessarily good, but also kind of good at the same time, that's the vibe we're putting down. I think you'll enjoy it. Check it out on HBO Max. Ari, it's been great to have you as a guest. I know you've been writing up a storm recently. So where do folks go on social media to follow you and make sure they don't miss your next liminal horror piece? Yeah, so you can uh, reach me on Twitter, Instagram. I have a Facebook that kind of exists there sometimes um, at the Ari Drew, T-H-E-A-R-I-D-R-E-W. And you can find uh, anything I write. I don't write a ton, but when I do write, I usually write about things that really spark a fire in me and things that I'm really passionate about. And a lot of it are, you know, filmmakers that are releasing cool shit. So, um, yeah, you can find me on Bloody Disgusting if you'd like to read any of that. Donato, my friend, you've got a lot coming up. Where do people go to find you? As always, you can find me at Donato Bomb, D-O-N-A-T-O-B-O-M-B, on Letterboxd, Instagram, Twitter, and Hive. I don't really do as much on Hive right now, but like, you know, it's it's still there. We should all go there someday and hang out. Um, things on the horizon, <laughs> it's just more of the same. We're going to write some uh, horror, horror features. We're going to write some horror reviews. We're going to do some other regular reviews. You know, I I just like to keep myself busy, as y'all know. So just follow along and, you know, maybe hit that authority too. You know, authority is a great thing. And they just put my interview up again. So I got to bump them again. <laughs> as for me, you can follow me at Matt Monagle on Twitter. I have an authority. It's like Matt Monagle or Matthew Monagle. I never remember how I call myself. 
Uh, but I will use my plug time to remind you to go visit www.certifiedforgotten.com. And yeah, if you like what you see and you want to support us uh, financially, you can support us on Patreon become, by becoming a, a patron. And uh, you know anything from one, three, five dollars will go a great deal towards helping us add more writers and more articles each month. And if you're not, if you don't have money to spare, that's okay too. You know what? We barter in reviews, Spotify and iTunes reviews. We love them. We'll take them. Tell everybody how you were inspired to go rewatch Horseman by listening to this episode. Uh, I promise you it'll make a difference in somebody else's mind, I guess. <laughs> Ari, it has been great to have you back on the show. You are in that two-timer club, which we absolutely fucking love. Um, and you, this is not the last time you'll appear on the podcast as well. Uh, so we hope to talk to you again soon. Yes, thank you both so much. And uh, it was a blast. Hope to see you all again in the future. Donato. Stay red. Thank you.